All right, we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Feta. Today, we're going to be going over the Bonanno crime family, uh, as you guys know, is the ongoing mafia series. So let's get right into it. No intro needed. Bonanno crime family, the Bonanno crime family, pronounced Bonanno, is an Italian-American mafia crime family and one of the five families that dominate organized crime activities in New York City and the United States as part of the criminal phenomenon known as the American mafia. And as you guys know, we're covering the first episode we covered was the organization, hierarchy, terms, etc. of the mafia and the history. Then we went into the Gambino family. Then we covered the Lucchese. Now we're doing the Bonanno. Next will be Genovese. And then after that, we're going to go ahead and do Colombo. And I'm trying to do that right around the same time that we have Michael Francis in studio. Uh, the family was known as the Maranzano crime family until its founder, Salvatore Maranzano, was murdered in 1931. And when I go over the de detail uh, of this guys with the um, war that they had uh, between the two different crime mafia families back then and the first episode that we do. So make sure to go back to the channel uh, and watch that first episode. Joseph Bonanno was awarded most of Marazzano's operations when Charles Lucky Luciano oversaw the creation of the commission to divide up criminal enterprises in New York and among the five families, which was very smart by Lucky because that took the target off his back. Under leadership of Bonanno between the 1930s and 1960s, the family was one of the most powerful in the country. So we're going to go ahead, guys, and cover this documentary right here, uh, Mafia in New York, the Bonanno family. And uh, yeah, and once again, I really, matter of fact, let me, because this is so important, I want you guys to really make sure that you watch this, because I'm not going to go over certain terminology with uh, this broadcast, because, well, this is, and this is right after filming The Deadliest Duo, go make sure to check out this um, DC Sniper one, you guys have been requesting this one for a while, but as you guys can see here, I created a Mafia playlist here, um, if you go down here, so in this episode right here, I go over everything, guys, I'm talking about, uh, well, I go over the hierarchy, the history from this Sicily, I go over <clears throat> the everything that y'all want to know when it comes to organized crime in the United States. Luckily, Luciano, I know how you uh, formated the commission and the crime families. Consolidated right? control over all that stuff is here. Magadino. Right? Okay, the commission, right? Like we go in detail on this one, man. So make sure to watch this episode right here, guys, because it's going to give you the history the breakdown, etc. So when I use certain terminology, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. And then we went on and did the Gambinos and the Lucchese's, as I said before. And uh, yeah, now we are on the. Let's go ahead and get into this documentary here. Mafia in New York, Drugs, the Bonanno Family. Drug addiction in the American cities was on the increase and crime was rising. <laughs> In the late 1960s, drug addiction in the American cities was on the increase, and crime was rising. The government was forced to take action. In 1971, President Nixon declared war on drugs. Just a year later, law enforcement won a major battle by breaking up the Marseille-based heroin racket known as the French Connection. These French laboratories were supplying America with so much of the drug that the bus led to a heroin famine on the streets. What nobody knew was that this success would lead to disaster. Shutting down the French connection was indirectly opening the door to something every bit as dangerous, the Sicilian Mafia. In the coming years, they would fill the gap in the market and forge a relationship with the most feared mafioso in America, Carmine Galante. In 1974, 
two years after the French connection was busted, Carmine Galanti walked out of prison, ready to flood America with a new source of heroin and turn the mafia. And just so you guys know, dealing drugs back then was forbidden um, between the five families. And the reason why is because the mafia looked at drugs as a dirty business and a lot of snitches and it would lead to you know increase heat and attention from law enforcement which is what they did not want that's why they were more involved with the labor racketeering the labor unions construction uh gambling scamming as far as like um fraud with gas uh with gas stations um extortion all these different types of crimes that you know kind of went under the the radar of federal law enforcement agencies but they stayed away from drugs. So the fact that the Bananos, right, were known for kind of um, being drug traffickers is something that sets them apart. But this was frowned upon, and you can get killed for doing this back then. Nowadays, right, if, if you do if find someone that's involved with La Cosa Nostra, you know, drug trafficking is kind of something that happens now. But back then, they had to keep it on the hush-hush. Even in the Gambino family documentary, if you guys watch, when John Gotti and his guys were involved in drug trafficking, they did everything in their power to kind of keep it from the other families or keep it on the hush-hush because it was an offense that could lead to death. Into a global drugs corporation. Galante was a member of the mafia family known as the Bananos. He had a long history of drug trafficking and an even longer history as a tough guy. His personality could be summed up by an incident at Lewisburg prison where he was serving a sentence for drugs trafficking. During telephone days, when inmates line up to use the telephone, he was in a section which had some of the toughest black inmates you've ever seen, murderers, strong arm artists, you name it. And he would simply walk to the head of the line, grab the phone out of some black inmate's hand and said, get off the phone, this surrounded by 200 black guys. No one dared touch hair on his head if that is a power i don't know what is man holy forget about it when he got out of prison uh the rumblings that you know that you heard on the street was a lot of people were scared of him um and he was a real tough guy a little office rocker and always known as a you know as a as a heroin man that's what he did. When Galante got out of prison, the Bonanos were in crisis. Their leadership, either exiled or in prison. Joe Bonanno's son, Bill, is a convicted mobster. He remembers Galante only too well. He had a short fuse. He was uh, abrasive. He had a manner about him that he would never win any uh, popularity contest and constantly, constantly had a cigar in his mouth. And that's where he got his nickname, The Cigar. With no challengers prepared to take on this dangerous man, the Bananos had their new boss. Galante's top priority was to kickstart the heroin trade. In five short years, he transformed the fortunes of the US Mafia by leading it into an era of multi-billion dollar profits and unparalleled violence. In the 70s, the Bonanno family was known in, this, in, in, in the mafia circles basically as being the heroin family. I mean, you know, everybody knew they were dealing in heroin. 
Galante was now in the perfect position to build a heroin business, even bigger than the French connection. He was head of the Bonanno family, and now the heroin trade was moving to Sicily, where Galante had his roots. And again, we talk about Sicily in detail, guys, on the first episode of this Mafia series, you know, the origin story there, how organized crime rose up in Sicily. This is something that's been going on for a while, guys, and how they had all the civil unrest going on. So make sure to check out that first episode before you watch this one. And if you're already starting to get confused, that's a sign that you need to go ahead to the original. So all of this makes more sense. Andy was born in New York, but his family came from the town of Castellamare del Golfo in the northwest of Sicily. Sicilians have been emigrating to America for a hundred years, but many of their descendants kept strong links with their homeland. Galante was no exception. His plan was to exploit his close ties with the Sicilian Mafia to dominate the American heroin trade. This was the beginning of a whole new era in the history of the Mafia. Until now, the Sicilian and American Mafia had mainly operated as separate organizations. With the French connection broken, the Sicilian Mafia decided to fill the gap in the market, and there was no bigger market than America. The Sicilians set up a sophisticated smuggling system. Pakistani suppliers shipped partially refined opium from Asia via Turkey to a rendezvous point off the coast of Sicily. A transmitter on the seabed alerted the Sicilians when the drug ships had arrived. Then a powerboat would speed out to meet it, returning with the drugs under cover of darkness. The opium base was processed into heroin in laboratories on the west of the island. Three Sicilian bosses ran this growing trade, but one of them was far more ambitious, far more greedy, and far more dangerous than the others, Totoriina. Riina planned to shake up the Sicilian Mafia, just as Galante. And just so you guys know, drug trafficking in the old land was permitted, but in the United States, it was not. And as a matter of fact, Mafia guys nowadays that are still based in Italy and Sicily, um, drug trafficking is a big thing that they do. Was making waves in America. The Sicilian Mafia always claimed they adhered to a code of honor, murdering only when necessary, and avoiding the killing of innocents, women and children. But Reina shunned these old guards. Stop the cow! Reina was as ambitious as he was ruthless. He was determined to become the boss of bosses, head of the Sicilian Mafia. To achieve this, he would commit so many atrocities that he became known simply as the Beast. Totoriina, known as the Beast, was putting Sicily on the heroin map. In the early 70s, his factories were producing ton after ton of pure heroin. All of it needed to be sold. On the other side of the Atlantic, 
Carmine Galante and the American Mafia could see that there were huge sums to be made selling Sicilian heroin. But there was also a problem. Throughout its history, the US Mafia had vowed never to be associated with drugs. The Chicago mob, known as the Outfit, was one of the most vocal opponents of the drugs trade. We always knew that if you dealt with drugs, it was a dirty business. And FYI, just so you guys know, this is the first time I've watched this documentary. Hey, man, like I said, this is the importance of watching that first episode I told y'all. How do I know all this? Because I did extensive research, watched that first episode, took notes, etc. So all this stuff makes more sense once you understand the history of the mafia and the origin versus going straight to the families. So um, he's basically repeating what I told y'all before. Drugs were a dirty business and brought a lot of unwanted attention to organized crime, which is why the mafia, at least, you know, back then, were one of the few criminal organizations that stayed away from drugs most of the time. Of course, you're going to have people that wheel and deal with drugs here and there. But in general, most of the guys, most of the organization were not involved in drugs. Maybe one or two guys would be doing it on the side. But if they got caught, they would get killed. So it was a very strong um, <clears throat> detractor from getting in the drug business. And uh, it'd be like you're feeding your own kid narcotics. So it was like taboo. And if you got involved with it, you're, you're definitely going to get whacked. As far as the outfit was concerned, there was no need to deal drugs when money could be made in more acceptable ways. And we will be covering the outfit guys as well after we cover the five crime families of New York. We're going to go over to the other side and cover the outfit, which is the Chicago-based portion, and we're going to cover Al Capone extensively, okay? In the 1970s, Frank Calotta was sent to Las Vegas to make sure nobody messed with the outfit's highly profitable casinos. My main job was the casinos, to make sure that everything ran smooth in there, there was no stealing going on, that they knew that our presence was there, that if they did mess around, that they would get hit in the head. But Colotto and his crew, running casinos, earned them respect in a way drugs never would. Actually, it was great. It was, it was beautiful. I mean, you had everything you needed out there. You had anything you wanted to do, you movie stars you want to be they wanted to be involved with you you wanted to be involved with them anywhere you went you got the red carpet treatment uh it was like you were respected i think you were respected i'm hoping that i wasn't feared but in some cases you were feared and if, if that brought respect well then it brought respect but for others the huge profits of heroin dealing were hard to resist from his beginnings in suburban brooklyn Dominic Montilio grew up to be a member of the notorious New York crime family, the Gambinos. He dealt drugs for the Mafia for many years. The word that filtered down, just saying, you know, if he got caught. And that was one of John Gotti's guys uh, that were doing this. And they caught them on wiretaps talking about selling drugs. That's how they actually were able to go ahead and catch John Gotti and a bunch of his other people. Because this dude was out here, um, or this guy that they're talking about was dealing dope in the Gambino family. And we talked about that in the last uh, Gambino podcast as well. Go, feel free to go check that one out, guys. You know, dealing drugs, you know, was an immediate death sentence. But the real message that came down was just don't get caught. 
at that time, I couldn't think of one crew that I knew that wasn't involved in it because the money was too was too lucrative to pass up. The street crews that were involved in it weren't going to give it up either which way. You know, there was guys that weren't making a real good living that all of a sudden were taking, you know, 150 large a week down. The mob didn't want to be seen to be peddling drugs, but they were happy to take the money. I mean, the reason, there was no great moral reasons why they didn't want you dealing in uh, heroin. It was just that it would bring out much more heat on the family. But um, the bottom line is the cash, you know, and that's, that's cash business. And the amounts are staggering, the amounts of money that can be made. The New York families knew that dealing drugs would attract attention from the authorities, but it was a risk they were prepared to take. The U.S. Mafia secretly embraced the heroin trade and was soon making more money than they knew what to do with. The unpleasant fact is that there is a new epidemic of heroin use in the United States. As Sicilian heroin began to flow, addiction rates in America soared. At the end of World War II, America had an estimated 20,000 heroin users. By the mid-70s, there were more than half a million. The FBI had little idea how such large quantities of drugs were getting into the country, or who was bringing it in. But that was about to change. In the 50s and 60s, FBI agents were mostly white males. Now the FBI was recruiting from a much wider pool. Finally, they had young, ambitious agents who came from the communities that were home to the Mafia and could speak the Sicilian dialect. That's very important, guys. And to this day, the FBI is still heavily involved in doing um, recruitment of people from different walks of life to, uh, you know, because they want language capabilities. They want people that could blend in, et cetera. You know, even to this day, the FBI is still a mostly Caucasian agency. So they do a lot of outreach to different demographics of people to uh, make the workplace more diverse, especially to gather people that speak certain languages that they're looking for, you know, Arabic, Russian, Mandarin, Chinese, etc. Joe Pistone was a young FBI agent from a Sicilian background. His mission was to infiltrate the mafia, something that had never been done before. Hey, here we go, guys. We might, uh, if you guys want, I might go ahead and do an entire podcast just on uh, Pistone. But, uh, you know, let me know in the comments what you guys want. I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. Uh, Joseph Di Pistone. A Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, man, former FBI agent. Let's go, baby. FBI in the house now. FBI in the house now. And there actually was a really good movie that came out on this. Did really well. Um, even uh, Mike Francis said that it was a very good, uh, re I guess, reincarnation of the original story. FBI, open up! And in this neighborhood, there were uh, mafia guys, mob guys, and I... Uh, I went to high school with uh, sons of mob guys. So I knew about the mafia uh, growing up. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't foreign to me when I became an FBI agent. So I was pretty well versed in the ways and uh, traditions of the mafia. Joe Pistone's dream was always to be a cop. Growing up, uh, it, it, it was easy. Uh, it would have been easy to go, you know, 
to go crooked or become bent uh, because uh, you're in the neighborhood. You see what's going on. Uh, there are guys doing illegal activities. Uh, but I, I never had uh, an inkling to go toward that because of my parents. I mean, uh, uh, I know if I ever did anything wrong that uh, I get a good swift boot in the rear end from my father. Same exact thing with me, guys. My dad, I try to go ahead and do something dumb. Denied. And I'm going to get slapped. So uh, definitely W parenting. On July the 7th, 1969, Pistone was sworn in as a special agent of the FBI. Seven years later, he disappeared from everyday life and developed a new identity. Everybody needs a legend. Uh, and that's a history, a legend, a history. And so, you know, you pick a name, and I picked Donnie Brasco. And uh, I picked a jewel thief, burglar jewel thief, because it's a, uh, it's a profession that is not uh, involved in uh, uh, violence. You know, not many jewel thieves are in jail for murder. So you, you, want, a, you want a legend that is a nonviolent legend, and you want one where you can provide somebody with something so I could... Uh, come around with uh, precious gems, jewels, and uh, tell them that I had just pulled a score. Pistone's job was to work his way into a mafia family. The risks were great, but if he pulled it off, he had the chance to expose a secret world of crime. One wrong move, and he faced almost certain death. In order to do this job, another thing, guys, I didn't talk about this in the first episode, but as you guys know, taking the code of silence to Omerta and becoming a made man, one of the parts of becoming a made man, you could not have ever have attended any type of law enforcement academy or be a police officer in any kind of fashion, even if you were crooked. You know, you might be an associate, etc., but you can never be a made man in the mob if you've ever attended a police uh, academy or worked in law enforcement. So this was death sentence if they caught him. The cover work, you have to have two things. You got to have a lot of nerve and uh, you got to have a lot of mental toughness. I'm not a person that sweats, you know, when I get into a jam, I don't sweat. So you don't know if uh, if you're scaring me or not, you know. And, uh, you know, there's not much that can be done to you. The worst thing that can happen is they can kill you. That's about it. The FBI wanted the inside story on the mafia. The Bonanno boss, Carmine Galante, was their first target. Pistone used the FBI's diamonds and his Sicilian roots to gradually infiltrate Galante's mafia family. Being of uh, Italian, uh, Italian ancestry and, and knowing the streets and uh, knowing how the mafia operates, uh, you know, you, you, you speak when you're spoken to, uh, you mind your own business, you don't get involved in conversation that, that, uh, that don't concern you. They don't just, you know, embrace you and take you in. And uh, you have to just lay back, be patient, and, uh, and work your way. You know, and it's the first impression that, that's going to that's gonna carry you through. And if uh, you do things, certain things that uh, they pick you out, that uh, you have street smarts and you are a street guy, that, that's what's going to make you. The fuzzle right on the table. In March 1977, Pistone began to hang around in Nome Banano territory. He soon got noticed by Mafia foot soldiers.
one of the wise guys Pistone met was Lefty Ruggiero. Pistone would later discover that Lefty was a known hitman for the mob. Lefty approached Pistone, asking him to sell some stolen jewelry. I was introduced to a fellow by the name of Lefty Ruggiero, and uh, Lefty was a 24-hour gangster. I mean, uh, he knew the mob. Uh, he knew everything about the mafia. If you need a teacher in the mafia, Lefty was the guy uh, was the guy that you wanted. I used my street smarts and my knowledge of the mafia, uh, and I didn't push with him as far as uh, uh, questions and you know trying to get the information. Uh, and he liked that. Uh, he saw that I was a street guy that I knew the streets, and also you know being a jewel thief and uh, bringing around some uh, precious stones. He liked that too, because- uh, it And that's really smart guys that he came in as a jewel thief. And the reason why he probably had that cover story versus having something else is that when you're in the mafia, right? You don't want to come in and say, oh yeah, I'm this tough guy and all this other stuff because they're going to put you to the test a lot of times and want you to kill somebody if they know that you're a violent criminal. But as a jewel thief, what he's able to do is he's able to say, hey, listen, I'm able to come in. I have a skill set. I can make y'all money because that's what they prioritize. and." I'm not necessarily one of these, you know, tough guys that needs to go out and kill people, but I, I got my connections in the underworld of being a jewel thief. So that allows the undercover agent to assume a criminal identity without necessarily having to be a violent one. Because if they do try to put him to the test and tell him, we need you to rough this guy up or beat this guy up, he can't do that as an agent. So um, that's why he went with the backstory of being a jewel thief, because um, it lets him inflate his own status within a, a mafia. He can go ahead and make introductions and it allows him to be a criminal while simultaneously still be able to um, have the guys in the cover of being a veteran crook that can steal and earn for the mafia, which is their number one priority. Violence always comes uh, just to, Violence is a secondary to the primary, and that primary is earning money first, which is why the mafia was so big on extortion rackets, gambling, having um, extorting uh, garment, the garment district, meat, kosher meat, all these different ways, right? To make money, they prioritized that. Obviously, the violence came if the money didn't come, but rarely did the violence have to come versus how many people they were extorting at the same time. But it was always about making money, not necessarily just committing senseless acts of violence. And Lucky Luciano is one of the big ones that imported that idea into the mafia, aka the commission. It was money, you know. As his undercover operations stretched into months and years, Pistone gradually became an accepted face within the mob. But the risks remained high. Former gangster Henry Hill knows all about the dangers that Pistone faced. I mean, he was susceptible to, 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 to get figured out and at any time, you know. I mean, it took balls. Believe me, it took balls. But he, he also enjoyed it. You know, he, got, he became a member. Or as close as you can come as a member. The stone was so convincing, an almost father and son relationship developed between him and Lefty. He did have an affection for me, I think, because uh, uh, he saw me, you know, something that he might have wanted to have been or his son, you know, to, to have been. And uh, he introduced me uh, to his family and his, his wife. And, uh, I, you know, I spent... And just so you guys know, this movie right here, okay, um, Donnie Brasco released back in 1997. Uh, Johnny Depp, good film, man. It covers um, this extensively. 
with uh, Donnie Brasco and Lefty, etc. So go ahead and check that movie out when you guys get the chance. Uh, but yeah, pretty damn good film here. Uh, you guys could see here, it got what? Uh, 7.7 on IMDb and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 1997 film. A lot of, a lot of times at his house having dinner. Uh, so uh, it, it became more than just a, you know, gangster on gangster relationship. By the summer of 1977, the stone had won Lefty's trust. But would he ever get any closer to heroin boss Carmine Galante? I was with I was a Lefty one night, and uh, he said we we gotta go uh, we gotta go somewhere. And I said, well, where we're we going? And he said, well, I'll tell you when we get there. Galante uh, was having a meeting in there, and uh, it was our job to stand outside and make sure that uh, the meeting went smooth and nothing happened. Uh, basically, we were outside guarding them. This was a big opportunity for Pistone. And I asked him, I said, you know, look, uh, can't we go inside? And he says, uh, what are you, crazy? Uh, you can't go in there and sit down uh, when the boss is meeting. You can't even meet the boss. You know, uh, he doesn't meet anybody on uh, on your level. Uh, Translation, you're not a made guy yet. So that's a big nope. And uh, if you guys want more details on becoming a made guy and the ritual and everything else like that, I cover this extensively in episode one, guys, so you can get the difference between a made guy, a.k.a. soldier versus a capo versus a consigliere, underboss, boss, etc. We go over the entire hierarchy in that first episode. Go back and watch it so I don't have to rehash it. He says we got to stand out here until we're told to, to lay releases, till we're told we can go. You know, it was kind of an adrenaline rush. Uh, a lot of things go through your mind, but the main thing was is that the... If I get killed, I'm going to get killed as a wise guy, not as, not as an FBI agent here. You know, here I'm, a, I'm an FBI agent working undercover, and, uh, you know, nobody ever got to be close to a boss, let alone uh, guard him. Bastone did not get as close to Galanti as he wanted, but he learned important facts about his operation. Before Bastone went undercover, the FBI had some idea about the inner workings of the mob. Now, for the first time, an agent was able to confirm the way the Mafia was organized from the inside. Pistone told the FBI how each family was structured into a military formation. At the top was the head of the family. Working directly for him was an underboss and an advisor, known as a consigliere. Beneath them were the capos each of whom ran a crew of five to ten foot soldiers. This structure meant the boss was always several layers away from the foot soldiers and the crimes they committed, making it almost impossible to convict the head of the family. This was vital intelligence in the war against the mob. And, and just clarification real fast, guys, because he said a wise guy, and a wise guy is commonly used to refer to a guy that's a made man, um, let me be very clear about this. Joey Pistone never became became a made guy. The FBI actually ended up pulling him out before he could be made because it was too dangerous because they were almost certain that he was going to have to commit some type of violent act to become a made guy. So he came very close, and he probably infiltrated the mafia to the greatest extent of any law enforcement officer in American history, but he was never a made guy, okay? And I want to make that very clear because becoming a made man is a big deal uh, in the mafia. It takes years of work. You need to 
for most, not all, unless you have like, you know, someone that's verifying you to tie up in an organization, etc. But it isn't easy to become a made guy. And once again, to understand what being a made guy is, go back and watch that first episode. I don't want to sound like a broken record, guys, here. Uh, but um, it's really important that you understand these um, terms and phrases and hierarchies, etc. So everything makes sense. But it was just the beginning. Pistone also managed to find out the secret of Galante's meteoric rise within the New York Mafia. Joe came back to us uh, uh, telling us about the uh, Sicilians whom the uh, American Mafia figures were referring to as Zips. And to him, this meant that these Sicilian Mafia figures within the Bonanno family were actually being used to commit murder, dealing in drugs, heroin, that was a just unbelievable uh, revelation. I met some uh, Sicilian uh, that were members of the, the mafia, uh, and uh, these guys were were made guys over over in Sicily and then brought over here. But the Sicilians had their own uh, their own clique over here uh, in the U.S. Galante had imported his own private army of ruthless Sicilian mafiosi. Galante's two key guys uh, that he brought over were uh, uh, Caesar Bonaventure and Baldo Amato. Uh, and uh, he brought them over from Sicily and uh, they were with him constantly. And I think one of the reasons why he did bring him over is that he felt a, a, a better sense of security with the Sicilians because... Uh, I guess he felt they were still loyal to the, to the tradition. Uh, they they weren't Americanized yet. Galante's new bodyguards made waves in the Bonanno family. There was a lot of friction I found between the American mafia and the Sicilians, uh, even though they were uh, married up into one family. I mean, anyway, Lefty and Sonny and, and, and the other Americans thought that they were looking to take over the family. And uh, that the other the other American mafia guys uh, didn't trust them and didn't like them. The Sicilian and American mafia were cut from very different cloth. In the past, the Sicilians had embraced rules and traditions, but that was changing. They'd kill anyone, you know, where we had certain rules. You know, it sounds strange, but th there were rules as to, you know, who you had to get permission from to go do a piece of work or um, you couldn't kill a guy in front of his family. And, you know, they didn't have those rules. These new ruthless Sicilians were from a mafia clan based in Corleone, a remote rural town deep in the mountains of Sicily. Corleone mafiosi are made of different stuff. They're tough, very hard. Probably their peasant lifestyle trained them to withstand anything thrown at them. Jail doesn't scare the Corleonesi. They aren't frightened of death. They're always faithful to their boss. The Corleonesi had reached the top of the Sicilian mafia by breaking rules and killing without permission from anyone. In the American Mafia, obedience to your superiors was deeply ingrained. 
The godfather of the American Mafia, Charlie Lucky Luciano, had formed an organization known as the Commission back in 1931. This was like the board of directors of the Mafia. All the heads of the families would meet to settle disputes and decide on strategy. The Commission imposed discipline on the warring families. Rules were agreed, which changed little over decades. One of the rules was that you didn't kill someone without permission from the head of your family. Las Vegas mobster Frank Colotta nearly paid the ultimate price when this rule was broken, thanks to his ruthless boss, Tony Spilotro. I grew up with this Tony guy. Uh, he was a very good friend. And as I said, you, you know, very good friends that are one that are going to get you killed. And uh, when he had ordered me to uh, whack some guy out here, I asked him, did you get the okay from back home? And he said, yeah. And he promised me he did. Well, he never did get the And uh, he got a call from one of the uh, bosses back there. And they said, what are you guys doing out there? Oh, Lord. You already know that this is going to cause a huge problem. Mamma mia! Killing someone without authorization from Chicago was breaking the rules. The punishment was death. And just so you guys know, the commission was all the crime families basically sat on the board and made these decisions. It wasn't just the five families of New York. It was the guys out of Chicago, the guys out of Florida, etc. And there was actually a meeting done uh, in New York. And a state trooper, right, that was very uh, go-getter, was able to catch these guys all meeting. And that's kind of the first time that the United States figured out that there was a national criminal organization of La Cosa Nostra. It would have kind of had been speculated against, but no one knew for sure. And when they call all these guys meeting in one location in New York from different parts of the country, that's when they were pretty much like... Bitch. Tony Spilotro decided to blame his best friend, Frank Colotta. He was lying. He was taking the weight off himself because he know he knew that if he didn't, instead he readily ordered me to do these things, that they would whack him in the head. So he shifted everything over to me. That was my best friend. We shined shoes together when we were 12, 13 years old. So all my life, he's the guy that actually was the guy that told me when I get to be a big man, you're my right hand man. And I was, but that's the same guy that was going to sell me out to save his ass, and get me whacked. It wasn't long before Tony Spilotro and his mobster brother received deadly punishment at the hands of the mob. Believe it or not, I felt a little bad for him. Uh, because that's, I mean, they were both beaten to death. They weren't shot, they weren't strangled, they weren't knifed. They were physically punched to death or beaten with bats to death, however, you know. And each one was to watch one die, you know. So, uh, and I felt bad. There were two brothers, same time. Like, you know, I grew up with the guy. Even though the guy tried to kill me, I still felt bad. For all American mafiosi, the rules of the commission were a fact of life and death. And that goes to show how brutal these guys were, man. Forget about it. Yeah, forget about your life. 
you really never know who to trust. I don't care how close you are with them, if you grew up with them or what. If uh, that, that's going to be the one that's going to kill you, usually, it's your best. Yeah. So, and and the reason for that, guys, is that yeah, if they want you dead, what they'll do is they'll you know tell you that there's a meeting or anything like that, and they'll walk you into a room. Right. And if they walk you in the room and there's nobody in there, then you already know what time it is. And by then you're probably getting shot in the back of the head, just like uh, the movie. I think it was Goodfellas where they had that scene where uh, uh, was it Donnie DeVito? What's it? I forget the actor's name. Uh, no, Joe Pesci. I think it was. He gets shot in the back of the head because they walk him into an empty room. People that he knows and trusts. And he's like, ah, oh, shit. And they shoot him in the back and he dies. So, um, yeah, a lot of times it's your best friend that lines you up, guys, uh, when it came to the mafia. Really crazy stuff here. Carmine Galante didn't care about the commission or its rules. He believed the American Mafia was soft and that his connections with the ruthless Sicilians made him invincible. But there was more than one advantage of having an alliance with the old country. At first, nobody thought much about it. Uh, but then the rest of the mafia began to get really nervous because they began to ask themselves, now, why is he bringing in so many of these zips? And everybody put two and two together. These guys are running heroin. This is a Sicilian connection at work here. Uh, we don't need this. For one thing, the organization felt we can't control the zips. Sicilians made and smuggled in the heroin. By hiring them into his own crew, Galante was making sure he would stay at the heart of the heroin business. What he was trying to do with the, in, the, in the heroin business, it would have been, you know, good for him to be aligned with the more Sicilians, the better, because that's where, I, you know, the pipeline went, came from. In the late 70s, the Sicilian Mafia dominated the heroin trade. On the streets of America, the profits being made were reaching $20 billion a year. Galante was trying to keep the profits to himself. Something had to be done. He was greedy. He wasn't, you know, the Bananos may have been involved in, in this, uh, the profits from this drug trade, but uh, Galante wasn't sharing it even with his own people and their family. Because he was. Hold on. And uh, nobody was going to tell him what to do. Uh, and he was going to run his family and he wanted to run uh, the other families too. And Sorry about that, guys. And during this time, uh, Galente was making deadly enemies. The other bosses didn't like him because of this uh, attitude that he had that he was the top boss in the city. Everyone knew, everyone knew on the street that the clouds of war were right there. I mean, if this guy stayed loose, what he was plotting would have definitely caused major, major, you know, war to happen between the families. For mob bosses, the Galante problem was growing. Only the commission had the authority to act. Their solution would be violent. Galante had to go. On July the 12th, 1979, Carmine Galante paid a visit to Joe and Mary's restaurant on Knickerbocker Avenue in Brooklyn. It was one of his favorite haunts. Run by his cousin, he felt safe there. He was joined by his two loyal Sicilian bodyguards. 
there's a courtyard that you go into and uh, there's an open uh, open air courtyard and uh, they were sitting down having uh, getting ready to have lunch and uh, Galenti was sitting there and he had his uh, cigar in his mouth three guys pull up outside jump out of a car oh, here we go you want to deal with drugs they uh, run in the restaurant and uh, start blasting away. Valenti ends up getting shot, falls off his chair, sprawls out on the ground, face up, and he still has his cigar clenched in his mouth. And uh, that's, that's how they got Galenti. This is the famous front page that greeted America the next morning. Galante's meteoric. That's what you get for selling drugs. They were not messing around with that man. Brought too much attention to them. Rise to the top had ended in a pool of blood. Still had the cigar in his mouth and everything, man. Crazy. Carmine Galente was rubbed out today as he sat in a Brooklyn luncheonette, a gangland execution of a man believed to be the most important organized crime figure in the country. After the murder, the killers fled the scene. But in an amazing coincidence, one... And the fact that he got killed as a boss, guys, tells you that the commission agreed upon that and it was universal that they wanted him gone. One of them walked into a club... The next thing you know... Fatality. Club that was under police surveillance. This incredible footage shows him reporting back to the commission bosses after the successful hit. But the feds were about to get an even bigger surprise. Well, when the police came on the scene, they had immediately identified uh, Carmine Galante's body. There's an old man had a cigar stuck in his mouth, totally lifeless. As the police pieced everything together, they were told that two other individuals who were in the backyard with Galante, later identified as his so-called bodyguards, they were the ones who miraculously got out of there without any uh, wounds whatsoever. Forensics found uh, uh, five different caliber slugs in Galante, and uh, there were only three gunmen. So that leads you to believe that there were two guns someplace else. And the only other two guys there were uh, Bonaventure and Amato. Bonaventure and Amato were the two key Sicilians Galante had brought over for his own protection. The police deduced from what they saw at the scene that Bonaventure and Amato were not there to... And just so you guys know, this is the area that he got killed right here, 205 Knickerbocker Avenue, right? And this is in Brooklyn. Uh, this is where he was killed back in the day. Right, and obviously it's changed a lot. You see it's basically gentrified now on a whole other level. But if I'm not mistaken, it's this building right here, one of these two buildings. So, uh, let's see here. Yeah, it's all crappy now. Uh, they have the bongs, hookah, cigars, and vapes. Okay, fantastic. Gotta love Scum City, New York, huh? protect Galante, they were there to ensure that his assassination was carried out without a hitch. The ultimate treachery was performed by his own men. The men who... 
Bam. The two guys that were supposed to protect him from Sicily. Who was supposed to protect him from any harm, they were the ones who actually helped carry out the assassination. The Sicilians had turned on Galante. It seemed his greed had upset others besides the commission. The Sicilians who had arrived in America in the 60s and 70s who were helping bring in the heroin from Sicily wanted full control in their hands. The message was, we are bringing it in, we are going to be involved in the distribution network. Therefore, we want a bigger share in the proceeds. And that was the message of the new Sicilians. We are the ones doing it, we want a bigger share. Not what Galante was doing, keeping most of the share for himself. Galante's murder made the FBI... And he felt that way probably because he took on all the risk. He was one of the few guys that was actually dealing drugs on a high level. So he looked at it like, yo, I could get killed for this. I'm taking all the risk. I'm going to take the biggest share because without me, y'all aren't going to make money anyway. Y'all are sitting on kilos of this crap over there in Sicily. I'm the one that actually has the market here. So he had a leveraged position where they need him to flood into the markets because the other families didn't want to touch it because obviously it was a descendant. But him as a boss... He had the leverage to be able to do it without necessarily feeling facing consequences to the same extent or as easily. Eventually, time ran out and he had to face those consequences. And on top of the Sicilians getting mad that he was taking such a big cut. But that's what happens with greed, guys. The more suspicious about the Bonanno family. For the commission to whack a boss meant there were big things going on. Two young agents, Charlie Rooney and Carmine Russo, were given the job of watching the Bonanno Sicilians. This is the area where myself and my partner, Charlie Rooney, spent a lot of time uh, conducting surveillance. And we needed to find intelligence that could only be found on the street. And that meant being out here, being the eyes and ears, basically, of uh, the FBI, trying to determine who these Sicilians were and what they were doing. One Bonanno member who soon came to their attention was Sal Catalano, who ran an Italian bakery in Queens. The FBI realized that Catalano was a key figure in the heroin trade. Suspicious packages were constantly being exchanged, probably containing either heroin or money. The FBI decided to play a waiting game in the hope they could break open the whole operation. One of the things that uh, we in the FBI and of course all of law enforcement wanted to know was how were they bringing the heroin into the United States at that time? Over the next five years, Russo and Rooney's surveillance operation evolved into the largest investigation the FBI had ever undertaken. Finally, after recording and translating more than 55,000 wiretaps, the team of 400 agents worked out how the Mafia smuggled heroin into America. They used uh, their businesses uh, furniture businesses, uh, construction businesses, marble, things of that nature. In particular, the pizzeria business. They needed uh, tomatoes uh, for the uh, sauce. The mafia had taken over pizzerias across the country and given them to immigrant Sicilians to manage. The operation was controlled by Sal Catalano from his bakery in Queens. This footage shows some of the actual restaurants implicated in the Pizza Connection trial. Restaurants just like these were used to distribute heroin around the country. 
The heroin arrived in the U.S. through all kinds of routes. Their methods were often ingenious. Cases of canned tomatoes or boxes of cheese arrived from Sicily, stuffed with heroin worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the pizza network was not a retail operation. Mafia dealers never sold the heroin directly on the streets. Instead, the imported narcotics were divided up and sold to smaller street dealers. That way, the bosses stayed well away from the dirty end of the business. The pizza restaurants had another use as well. Catalano and his crew could hide their profits by passing them off as restaurant takings. Pretty ingenious cover. I mean, you know. Really smart, man. Really, really smart that these guys were doing this and getting away with it for so long. Making that big money. Who figures a pizza place? <laughs> you know, you figure you see some guy slinging the dough around making a pizza. What's he going to be involved in? Mafia dealer Henry Hill regularly used pizza restaurants for his drug drop-offs. It wasn't difficult for me. I, I used to go to a pizza joint in the shopping center, leave my car there, and take a different car home, you know? And then I go back four days later, and, you know, sit there and put the money in the trunk. The evidence the FBI found led to the very top of the common tactic in the drug game. You don't really know what you're transporting, whether it's money or drugs sometimes, then you go ahead, bring the car's loaded, you drop the car off, you know, you get a set of keys, take another car, and uh, that's kind of how you compartmentalize the criminal activity so that you can isolate people from knowing too much. Mafia, and all the way back to Sicily. Salvatore Catalano was aligned with the Colionesi in Sicily. That's where the power came from. Uh, it was uh, Salvatorina, the boss of the Colonese. Salvatore Catalano came here with a purpose. Purpose was the Sicilian Mafia had a commodity that was being sent to the United States. They needed people here whom they could trust and carry on that activity. The power of the Colonese Mafia and their ruthless boss, Totorina, stretched all the way to America. Who knows how long they had been doing this before we stumbled onto them. And we basically stumbled onto them. And I believe what did it for them and for us was the Galante murder. Without that murder, I don't think we would have uh, set our eyes on them at the time that we did. Meanwhile, keep in mind, guys, you know, Donnie Brasco is undercover, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to be able to gather the evidence. And keep in mind, he wasn't a made guy, so he wasn't privy and seeing all the criminal activities activities that these guys were involved in because until you're a made guy you don't really see the inner workings of the mafia and even at that level when you're made you're seeing barely scratching the surface so they were limited in what they could see through donnie brasco though he did provide amazing insight as to the hierarchy and what the guys were doing behind the scenes he couldn't verify all of it which is why he was undercover for so long fbi agent joe Stone still had a problem how to escape alive from his undercover role inside the Mafia. Despite Galante's murder, Joe Pistone's dangerous undercover operation continued for two more years. But in 1981, his mission came to a dramatic climax. The head of Pistone's Mafia crew was a hard man called Sonny Black. Over the years, Black had been impressed with Pistone. Now, Sonny decided to honor Pistone by making him a made man, a full member of the Mafia. But there was one big catch. Pistone 
would have to kill someone. Again, guys, I didn't watch this documentary before pulling it up for you guys, but I know this stuff. Why? Because like I said before, episode one, go back and watch it. On the Mafia um, series, I break this all down as to what it takes to become a made guy. When Sonny Black gave, gave me the contract to do the hit, I mean, you can't refuse it. You have to take the contract. Otherwise, uh, you're the next guy that's going to get killed because, you know, that's just part of being a mob guy, a mafia guy, is that because uh, uh, you don't you don't do hits on uh, on the on the fee basis. You just do it because you're part of the uh, you're part of that crew. Uh, I accepted the hit. Uh, luckily, uh, the, the guy that I had the contract on was on the lamp because he knew he was going to get killed. Uh, but I went looking for him. I went to Florida, back to New York, and uh, couldn't find him because he was in hiding. In a twist of fate. That would never get approved by the FBI nowadays, man. They are so bureaucratic and so much red tape. Like, they, they were running and gunning back then. But nowadays, that would never fly, bro. They would have pulled them off this case way sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Piston was asked to what? They would have given him the fucking, you coming back. One of the men who had assassinated Carmine Galanti. But it was not to be. Hey. The FBI could not allow an agent to commit murder. On July the 26th, 1981, Pistone was pulled out. Did the kids ask about him? The FBI decided to tell Pistone's mafia contacts that he was an undercover agent. Despite Galanti's murder, Joe Pistone's dangerous undercover operation continued for two more years. But in 1981, his mission came to a dramatic climax. The head of Pistone's mafia crew was a hard man called Sonny Black. Over the years, Black had been impressed with Pistone. Now, Sonny decided to honor Pistone by making him a made man, a full member of the mafia. But there was one big catch. Pistone would have to kill. He was in a body bag, and they had, uh, they had chopped off his hands. Uh, and that was an indication that uh, he had brought me around to shake hands with, uh, with mob guys uh, that were of, you know, of stat status. These photos of Lefty were taken just after he found out Pistone was an FBI agent. He knew he was in big trouble. The Mafia would never forgive such a mistake. The Bonanos put out a contract on Lefty Ruggiero. But the FBI found out and snatched him into custody before the killers got to him. Pistone gave evidence against Lefty, and he was sentenced to 20 years. He died of cancer on Thanksgiving Day, 1995. At least Lefty didn't get clipped, you know? He lived his life in, a, in jail. Uh, you know, he got what he deserved. I mean, you know, I didn't make Lefty a gangster. I didn't make Sonny a guy. I didn't make any of these guys gangsters. They were gangsters before I got there. They were gangsters while I was there, and they were gangsters after I left. Joe Pistone had survived undercover for six years. But I mean, you know, that's a long time to spend undercover with, with that, you know, with a crew that's, you know, more than capable of killing you and taking your part, you know, dumping your body's parts somewhere. And to have those guys trust you to a point, 
I mean, I never heard an FBI guy coming close to getting made. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were looking to make him. Bullshit is his way through it. And then he got addicted to it. And uh, it took the government a lot of years. And, you know, I mean, they got a lot of cases out of it, but it almost destroyed his life, you know. And he thought he was a wise guy, you know, and he thought he was an FBI agent. After being pulled out, Pistone spent the next five years testifying against his Mafia buddies. Then in 1986, he left the FBI to write a book about his experiences. But his life would never be the same again. Even now, he lives under an assumed name, under constant threat of assassination. The Mafia put a contract out on me. Uh... Oh, yeah, I'm not surprised, man. They definitely want him gone. I mean, for five years, he testified on all the different crime families because, guys, keep in mind that obviously he worked for the Bonanno family the most, but he also was involved with the Columbos. Um, Michael Francisen met him before or knew of him, uh, which we'll ask him questions about that as well. But, yeah, man, I mean, when you're in this life, you end up dealing with guys from other families. So he had extensive knowledge and experiences, and he was able to testify against all the different crime families and ensure that they went to prison. So, uh, yeah, I would imagine that he would absolutely have a big contract on his life after this undercover stint. When the uh, operation terminated and I surfaced, my identity uh, showed up. Uh, am I worried about it? Uh, I don't think about it every day. Uh, just take precautions and uh, go about living the way I live. And uh, if it happens, it happens. And the best man will win. Thanks to the efforts of law enforcement agents like Joe Pistone and Carmine Russo, the Pizza Connection investigation seriously weakened the American Mafia. After years of making vast profits from narcotics, it would take much more than that to stop them. No one could have foreseen that in the coming years, the actions of one Mafia boss would change everything and bring the American and Sicilian Mafia to their knees. Bam. So let's see here. I think that was at the end of it. Let's fast forward here. Oh, yeah, that's it. So ended up being shorter than I thought. Um, guys, yeah, that was a documentary on the Bonanno crime family and quite a bit of an insight into the undercover work of joe pistone uh aka donnie brasco but uh hope you guys enjoyed that one man i'm gonna catch you guys on the next episode of fed it make sure to go ahead and like the video subscribe to the channel make sure to check out the mafia series that we're currently shooting we'll probably do the genevieve's crime family next love you guys catch you on the next one peace i was a special agent with homeland security investigations okay guys hsi the cases that i did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking no one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on 